I think we're still in a bit of a state of flux. Pre-pandemic, we got so used to behaviours being very predictable and behaviours are not predictable anymore. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. When I say the word advertisement, what do you picture in your mind's eye? Perhaps it's a TV spot, perhaps it's an ad in the paper, or maybe if you're a particularly young listener, it's an influencer on social media. But for me, when I picture an advertisement nine times out of ten, I'm thinking of a billboard. Out-of-home advertising is the oldest form of advertising there is, and it has had a whirlwind of the past three and a half years. It was hard hit by pandemic-era lockdowns, but has recovered quickly over the past year and a half. And now, according to the World Out-of-Home Organization's Global Market Index report, it is set to surpass $40 billion in global revenue for the first time this year. Joining me to discuss the biggest developments in out-of-home is Denise Turner, the CEO of Route Research, which provides audience measurement for the out-of-home industry. In a media career spanning more than three decades, Denise has worked for Bartle Bogle, Hegarty, Leo Burnett, Zenith, Havas Media Group, and Newsworks, and so I can hardly think of anyone more qualified to talk about, well, practically anything in media, but especially out-of-home. Denise, this is your second time on the podcast, so I have to say welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, gosh, that makes me sound really old, your introduction. Oh. I'm not quite <laughs> sure not about that. Experience. No. Experience. Experience, definitely, yeah. definitely. So Qualified thank you very much for having me. <laughs> and we're also joined today by reporter Ella Sagar, who has written extensively about the out-of-home industry in recent months, including publishing interviews with leaders at big out-of-home companies, JC Deco, Ocean Outdoor, and Clear Channel just this week. And I'm sure Global and other out-of-home companies are itching to speak with you on the record as well. Ella, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Jack. Denise, uh, you have been in your role at Route for just over a year now. Is that correct? That is. I joined mid-July 2022. So yes, just over a year. I cannot believe where the time has gone. (laughs) Well, tell me about how the journey's been. Just Well, first of all, how did you get into Route? from, you know, working around the industry for so long and deciding to sort of go into out-of-home and then how the past year's gone, maybe some really big things that you're proud of that you've developed over the past year. So, you know, your introduction obviously talked about my history in the media industry and all of the things that I've done. And I worked a lot with clients, with um, both full service, both media, and then went into publishing marketing I'd never worked in out-of-home before, but I'd always looked at out-of-home in the round in terms of all the other media channels that were available. So what was really interesting was that not having ever worked in out-of-home, that some of the skills that I developed in dealing with clients on the agency side were hugely transferable. So one of the things I said to my board right early on was, I'm really conscious that you invest this money to provide a currency uh, that allows you to trade uh, out-of-home media. And, you know, it's exactly the same as when I was dealing with clients. I'd say, look, I'm not going to be profligate with your money. I'm going to invest this money. I'm going to recommend where you invest this money uh, that will give you the best chance of a possible return. And to be honest, it's still the same when you're running a media currency. I'm going to invest your money, that it means that you have the best possible chance of selling your medium to your customers. So some of those skills actually are hugely transferable. I think the other thing that's really been clear to me is that having a background in research 
is really helpful running a jig. I've never been one to sit in a back room, by the way, when when talking about research. I've always been, I've probably annoyed some of the business directors that I worked with, but I've never been one to sit in a back room uh, with research. The research has got to be an aid to decision making. It's not got to be an be all and end all in and of itself. Uh, so I think that background in understanding the intricacy of the research is really helpful. Um, but also having that bigger picture, that sort of helicopter view of what it means for clients' businesses is really helpful. And, and that just translates through to my stakeholder businesses as well, that making sure that what I provide for them helps them to sell the medium in the best possible way. Mm. And what have you been particularly proud of this year, perhaps? One of my biggest challenges is to sort of deliver the next contract for Root. Um, so we're in the process of working out what the next iteration of Root looks like. And that actually takes a lot of time and effort. So I'm really proud that what we've done this year so far is we've issued a request for proposal. We've had shortlist presentations. We're really close to the point at which we're going to appoint the next contractors for the contract uh, to 2030. Now, that's quite scary, actually, in some ways, because who knows what the world's going to be like in 2030? Mm. I, I'm not sure any of us do, do we? But I've got to take a bet on what I think planning and trading out of home in 2030 will look like. So I, I'm really proud that I took a step back and I commissioned a project where we looked at what were the key things that we would need to be looking at for 2030. So we're really close to the point at which we can appoint uh, the next contractors. And that is... It's a huge thing. And actually, if you asked a lot of people in the industry, they wouldn't have any idea about the complexity and the scale that you need and the depth that you need to go into to, to get to this. So I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud also because I'd never worked a night of home before. Although I had a, a wide media experience, I'd never worked a night of home. So actually, what I'm really proud of is that I've been able to really get to grips with what does it all mean? And I'm going to say it's not stupid questions, but I've asked sometimes what are really obvious questions. And my team go to me, oh, Denise, honestly, <laughs> what are you asking that for? But actually, it, it's those questions that you, what are the sacred cows and what are they not? What are the things you can get rid of that you don't have to uh, really sort of uh, delve into? One of, one of the board members talked to me about a thing called a Gordian knot. Mm. Heard of a Gordian knot? I think so, but I couldn't describe it for you. But it's basically cutting through everything you think you know and really sort of stripping things back to what is important and what's not important. And this is, you know, this is the thing. Um, so I've been reading some books recently, and one of them is by Mo Goddard, who is was chief business officer of Google X. And he talks about a thing called moonshots. So rather than tweak around the edges of something, he talks about like just ripping it all up and starting again. So things like driverless cars would be a good example. <laughs> uh, but I think it's sort of for a currency, 
yes, you don't want to change for change's sake, but equally you don't want to stick with what you've got because it's comfortable. So it's that sort of balance between change versus stability, which is one of the challenges I think that we face uh, going forward. But I love that idea of moonshots. I love the sort of thought of just ripping it all up and giving it a go. Mm, especially if you uh, are, are making a bet for 2030, which... Um uh, well, you can t- can you tell us about what bet that you that you are looking to make? What out of home looks like? And so seven I think years? I think one of the things that twenty thirty is going to look like is that it will look will look different to where we are now, but I think it will look different in the sense of automation rather than actually fundamental changes in how we measure exposure to advertising. I think that the means of how we deliver that data will be more automated. You know, at the end of the day, one of my fundamental beliefs is that what I'm delivering as as part of Root is I'm delivering the counts. I'm delivering how many people see which ads in which place. You know, that is the fundamental. How we do that is the bit that I've got to sort of really try and work out and the automation of that and making it as efficient as we possibly can is really important because we've got something like half a million screens in the country that we're measuring. Well, you can't do all of that justice on a really small sample size, but how can you automate stuff? How can you build synthetic models that allow you to deliver stability and innovation at the same time? Mm. Ella, you've written an awful lot about Out of Home in the past few months, as I've mentioned, um, and, I, and I do want to touch on your most recent interview with uh, Clear Channel Europe CEO Justin Cochran in just a moment, but you also attended this year's World Out of Home conference in Lisbon earlier this year. Denise, I'm not sure. Were yeah, you there Denise as well? was on stage. Oh, mm, wow. Yeah. I wasn't there, so I'm sorry. I didn't <laughs> it was very <know>. exciting. <laughs> um, can you help set the scene for us a little bit? Denise has given us a, a little look into the future, perhaps. But what does it look like right now? What's the current state of the out-of-home industry? Yeah, it was a it was a whirlwind couple of days. And I think great to see such an international mix of people in the room. And But I think out-of-home, uh, some things are kind of universal, that there is that growing kind of digitization of, of billboards and, screen, like, and so sites and screens and then trying to make it a very digital product whether that's with programmatic as well there's a few innovations on that front so there's even though digital doesn't make up the the majority of inventory in most countries it brings in the most revenue and um from my understanding of out of home sites the first kind of the way that you would pick a site to be like oh we're going to turn that classic billboard into a digital one it's normally the one with the highest footfall in the kind of that sort of desirable area and so there's no wonder that it Digital's bringing in more revenues. Um, in terms of other elements, a lot of the conference was talking about out of home getting over its 5% syndrome. So surpassing this 5% uh, kind of level of global ad spend that it's kind of stayed at. So the level of spending out of home has just kind of stayed consistent globally. It's not really gone up a huge amount. It hasn't really, like aside from, you know, pandemic, um, you know, anomalies there, but uh, it's, it's really an aim to get to more like a 10% um, mm. as, as a uh, globally as, uh, for spend. Yeah, kind of five, the 5% syndrome, the digitization, and also I w- would think the social piece and how 
social amplification and mobile interaction is going to be used in out of home even more because it's almost like out of home is the social media of the real world and then it kind of the a billboard is so much more than just like if the Piccadilly lights is the obvious example in in London like people are sharing it on social media and it's got a much wider reach mm. and so how do you quantify that or like factor that into your out of home planning uh, and it's kind of a bit more than it being just a viral moment like there is going to be movement in that space I think mm. I'm going to ask uh, about that in a little bit <laughs> um Denise, how, how how can out of home grow the the its share from five percent to say ten percent? I mean, w- what are sort of actions that could be directly taken to get more people to spend on out of home? Well, I think um, so. Two things. One is storytelling. You know, while I say I'm really clear that Roots Remit is who and the what. You know, how many people and where do they see it? The why is definitely down to the media owners and the buyers this you know in the space to tell the story of why but i can tell a story of uh, actually what does this data mean for you and and you very kindly published a piece by you and in my team recently about the green man you know actually how long does it take a person to cross the road oh, sorry i think a chicken to that point it's <laughs> not a chicken um but <laughs> but it is just bringing the data to life in an interesting way, rather than it being such and such is up and such and such is down and such and such is here. Um, so what I want to do is, as well as creating the the data, also just telling those stories about what does the data mean? Because that's what, in my experience, having worked in agencies, planners absolutely love those sorts of stories. So inspiring them with the stories. You know, one of my... My interview question uh, when I went for the job at Root was how to make Root data more visible mm. to the wider planning and buying community, and that the Green Man story is just absolutely apt for that. Really, just making sure that we can tell those sorts of stories. I think also how does out of home fit with other channels is the other point, and one of the things I've been really heartened by is the collaboration amongst the out-of-home industry. So there was a piece of work earlier this year called The Point of Search, Mm -hmm. which all the major media owners and uh, PosterScope worked on together. And it was about mobile search whilst out-of-home. And I think that's really interesting because it's like no medium is an island. And I've written about that ad infinitum and MediaTel as well. I'd wanted. Um, but no medium's an island. You know, it's got to work together, you know. And, you know, if you're writing about, we've all done it. Oh, I must just search for that. I must just search for this. So that sort of connection with other channels and really sort of highlighting where those connections make a difference to people's purchase intent and behaviour actually is really important. Mm. Uh, Ella, I, I did mention your interview uh, with Clear Channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read that on our website at the-media-leader.com. Uh, for those that don't know, Clear Channel is one of the biggest out-of-home companies. And uh, as Ella reported, they have been selling off their European businesses this year. And according to your reporting, they're also looking to put their UK business up for sale as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on at Clear Channel 
and and why are they looking to sell off a good portion of their business? Yeah, it's it's been interesting to look at over time, and um, so that they've sold or are in the process of selling four of their European South businesses. So um, Switzerland and Italy have sold, and France and Spain are still kind of going through the motions. You have to get you know regulatory approval and all of these different things before these big deals go through. Um, and so in their earnings call, their um, CEO, Scott Wells, said that they want to be a US-focused business and that they wanted to conduct a strategic review of their um, international businesses. And so I had a conversation with Justin Cochran, who is a Clear Channel Europe CEO, and um, he was telling me that the reason why they've been saying they want to be a US-focused business for quite a while as a as a company – so Clear Channel Outdoor is a US company and Clear Channel UK is obviously it's based in the UK and it's part of Clear Channel Europe. Um, and the idea being that if they become a US only business, uh, they can become what's called a real real estate investment trust. Um, and that's what a lot of the competitors in the US, the outdoor um, media owner competitors are. And it gives them certain tax breaks and other, it makes them more competitive. But in order to become a US only business, it makes sense you sort of have to sell or get uh, kind of your international businesses and so Justin within um within that he is going to his priority and is going to be finding the right buyer for the right time for the remaining European businesses mm. and do other major out-of-home companies then stand to gain potentially uh what's the yeah, price it, that he's asking for you right? yeah I, I i couldn't really uh i think there's going to be lots of like financial things in the background and i think there's going to be it's going to depend a lot on the main players in in whichever markets they're looking for because um it might be the fact you will always have to there will always be competition law so an outdoor media owner like jc deco has bought spain and italy or is in the process of buying spain and so that's have to has to go through uh, competition but that means that if there were other clear channel businesses and it was okay with all the competition law and the and all of those negotiations went well then potentially other things are the france businesses uh it's in exclusive discussions with equinox which is a private equity firm and uh, what was quite interesting which i think was spoken about at the lisbon uh, conference um denise was in one of the presentations was from a private equity firm called solomon and he was saying uh, the speaker was that out of home is seen quite well from a certain private equity because it's seen as an infrastructure business combined with a digital business. Mm. And that's quite attractive to certain private equity firms. Mm. Can you speak on that a little bit more, Denise? It, what's really interesting about out of home is that I think Ella said it very well, is that, you know, you've got both the infrastructure in terms of the billboards, but you've also got the digital screens and you don't have, and this is quite interesting because you don't have the same kind of context issues that you might have with other channels, sure. you know. So, you know, news brands, which obviously I worked in for quite a long time, you know, where does your ad appear next to? Well, in Out of Home, it's like, is it next to a building or is it in the countryside? Or the context is quite different. So I think that's quite attractive to uh, private equity because it's not sort of muddied by a content or should I say dodgy content but you know it's not muddied by questions around what are you next to mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what was also something about Out of Home that's fairly unique is that it it does give is something. I think there's going to be a new report coming out soon, but it's kind of the fifty p in every pound that's invested in Out of Home goes back to uh, the community, whether that's kind of those uh, like those areas around the billboards, the landlords, all of that sort of thing which is quite an interesting idea because uh, there are other media owners and media channels have different initiatives to kind of give back and things like that. But I think, mm. I no, I agree. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, that whole, because if, if a, an outdoor media owner wants to build a new site, they have to engage with the local authority. Mm. They have to go through lots of hoops so it's not just the 50p in the pound you know that they give back to local community i was rereading again you know about the defibrillators that jc mm. deco have put in place and i think it's they've been know, commissioned they are used over 500 times or something and, and it's just wow. that sort of giving back to the community and you know the industry talks a lot about purpose and that's sort of just purpose done well I think without any sort of big fanfare about it, you know, all of the media owners do stuff like that. They give back to the community in some way or another, um, but they don't always shout about it enough, I suppose. So maybe that's maybe that's something I need to do. <laughs> maybe Outsmart and things like that can can do yeah. can do a good job on that. Outsmart the kind of the body mm. for the outdoor industry. Um, yeah, and I mm. I work quite a lot with them to make sure that what we are providing from a root perspective feeds into what they are doing in terms of selling the medium. Mm, mm. We've talked a little bit about measurement already, but I know it's going to be a major topic at our upcoming Future of Media conference in October. Um, and I know there's been a good amount of research uh, into measurement this year with Root. Um, Lupin, I think, also even did a study uh, on out-of-home uh, as well. It's obviously a very high-attention environment. You have big billboard you're walking around you might be looking at it that depends on how quickly you might be moving which uh you shared with us that research earlier this year um can you tell us a little bit about how uh, important measurement is i think you, you even wrote for us that it's the new digital it's the new big thing yeah do you know I, I, yeah i was um because there was something on linkedin last week or the week before when i was on holiday with not very much internet signal so i went back to it this morning and i did yeah, I wrote a piece called Measurement as a New Digital. Digital was, the phrase digital was one of my big bugbears when I was at Newsworks because digital is just a means of delivering content. It's not an, 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 you know, an end in and of itself. And I think measurement, people use the term measurement quite loosely and all, often ill-defined. So there was a debate um a week or two ago about what does cross-media actually mean? And, and it is one of my bugbears, the definition of cross-media. But when you look at the dictionary definition of cross-media, it is two or more forms of uh, delivering content. So, yes, you know, telly and YouTube can be defined as cross-media, but actually it's probably cross-platform. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, or it could be multi-channel. Somebody said pan-media. I don't think I've ever heard oh, no, the word pan-media used. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think we need to be really clear about what we're measuring and why. Um, and I would like, you know, rather than sort of a, a just a loose sort of definition of what measurement is, I'd really like people to be clear when they write about measurement to say, we're measuring this and this and that's what it is so 
measurement, it's whether you're measuring audiences, are you measuring campaigns, are you measuring campaigns across channels, or you you know, are you measuring exposures? Um, and I think that's I just think we need to get a lot clearer about our definitions and and that is it's probably something I'm going to write about actually because mm. I think the definitions are all over the place. But I think for for root, the challenge is, you know, and I'm uh, like I've said, I'm really clear we're measuring the the number of people, the types of people going past different, types of posters or billboards or screens you know we've got 15 different environments that we measure in route whether that's underground tube car panels whether it's you know uh, posters on the side of a street whether it's a six sheet outside a shopping center or whatever so we, we are measuring lots of different formats what I've got to do is try and do that in as cost efficient way as possible so what we're proposing for the next contract is to automate things more, mm-hmm. me- build up a sort of sense a sense of scale in terms of all of the different environments that we're measuring, and then do some kind of modelling of that data uh, going forward. Because there's no point in measuring something if the margin of error is really high you know mm-hmm. you might as well not measure it at all so what we've got to do is try and achieve that balance between measuring what matters in as efficient a way as possible and as in as stable a way as possible because i'm i'm definitely not a purist researcher like i don't want it it doesn't have to be perfect it has to be good enough you know i do I do quite dislike the phrase um, that Mark Zuckerberg coined, which was done is better than perfect. I much prefer Winston Churchill's perfectionist paralysis. Mm. You know, you need to be as good as you possibly can. But actually, you know, if you get to 97% accuracy, what's the difference between 97 and 97.5%? Probably not that much. So that's, I think that's my challenge as running a research measurement solution is trying to make it as robust as it possibly can be without being so so purist and perfectionist that we actually we don't deliver anything that's of value to my stakeholders sometimes i feel like that as a as a writer as well i mean not not when it comes to fact checking but you know i think it's a very detail-oriented profession and in, in journalism and so you want it to be absolutely perfect but certainly that, that can lead to missed deadlines or, uh, you know, paralysis is, is a good way yeah, to put it's, it. It's not that you shouldn't strive for to be the best that you possibly can be, but at some point you've got to go. You've got to walk away in, this, a, way, in this, a sense. This is as good as it's possibly going to get. Mm. Um, Ella, you, you mentioned this sort of uh, marriage between out of home and, and social and digital and something that's come up recently that's been... Uh, very viral on social media are not even real uh, billboard advertisements, but fake out-of-home advertisements. Um, I was thinking specifically of a a now famous uh, Maybelline mascara ad was viral on TikTok. You brought this to my attention because I'm definitely not on TikTok. Um, (laughs) Our editor, Omar Oaks, wrote about it in his column this week. He said, quote, fake ads or branded fan art stand a much better chance of going viral when they marry bizarre activations with seemingly real world locations. 
I'm curious, um, both of you really, what, what do you make of this type of a development, especially alongside that sort of, there's a digitage, digitizing nature of out of home going on, there's um, using social media for this sort of added earned value. Um, should people be sort of strategizing about not actually making a out of a real out of home campaign, but a fake one, perhaps using AI tools? What does that actually, what does that look like in terms of a media plan? I mean, uh, I'm curious what you guys make of the news. I mean, I don't know where to start with the, I mean, the, with the Maybelline, which um, uh, Denise has kindly uh, printed out a picture of it um, <laughs> uh, to refresh my memory. But I, I do think it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, but I, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't think they would be able to, uh, they wouldn't have been able to get permission to, to run that kind of ad in real life. Right. It would be, it's, you know, the mascara brush is hanging over the tube and the and and things like that but i think it just seemed to capture the imagination in a way that i and people get so excited about it and i quite and there's been similar ones with you know like handbags on like is superimposed on taxis and other things like that which are kind of using that out of home kind of fame thing but it's all all kind of not actually there so you know you're kind of using out, out of home superpower but uh, in a way that when when wouldn't it be great if it could have been done on in real life in a, on a billboard and kind of that's that's kind of my perspective. I'm you know I've seen a few activations on my walk to work from Waterloo. You know like there's like a giant bagel like jumping out of the screen or like Dungeons and Dragons. There's a dragon breaking out of the billboard and I'm like that's really cool. I'll take a picture of that mm. and and that's uh, but I I don't know. I think maybe maybe this is me being a bit cynical. But I'm like I wish it would be real. <laughs> And, and, you know, there are so many good examples of real uh, ads that do this sort of thing. I don't know if you've seen the oldie one uh, recently where they had a slice of bread uh, coming out of a billboard and it was all about um, a proper uh, wage rise for staff. And basically it was the bread rising above the billboard, mm -hmm. which was absolutely wonderful, you know. So that, I think, is, you know... It's sort of like this, but it's real. Mm. I think this has got stunt written all over it. And if it makes people think about it at home, I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm. But, it, but you know, in the same way that if you overuse something, it stops having an impact. So I think we just need to be a bit careful about mm. this. I think it's, it's useful in reminding people about the power of out of home, but not... It shouldn't be to the detriment of actual real mm. creativity, mm. you know, like the Aldi yeah. bread. Yeah, at had. the conference that we were at, they uh, there was a great presentation about like which kind of brought to light all of these really, mm. you know, cherry picked uh, out of home executions that were kind of stunty or, or a bit kind of just really funny and and just in the right context the and or really really like simple and we saw this with with barbie with you know just a pink billboard and things right. like that and so there was one which um which i found quite interesting which was like for it was um a nike um no was it nike adidas see i can't remember which brand it was but it was really cool it was like this they built like an a big swimming pool um, oh, on yes. the, on the and then one. and mm. so then when someone dived into this swimming pool, which was kind of elevated on the beach, they were the billboard, the person swimming. Yeah, that's cool. Um, which was kind of cool. And then I was sat there, and then um, 
my colleague just leaned over to me and said, oh, that's like our swimming pool in the hotel, isn't it? I'm like, <laughs> and then it just kind of, just, I was like, oh, all of that worked for just like, oh, it looks like a normal swimming pool. Anyway. No, but yeah, it's it's a interesting idea. And I think Out of Home always has really interesting creative uh, thing that hello you've done a good job highlighting some of mm. some of the best that that's tends to be i don't get out of my house basically enough <laughs> so that's one way in which i see it but i think that speaks a little bit to the fact that well, people might make an image you know take take a picture of it and uh, uh post it online and that's how people see the advertisement increasingly um and um so i think even though ideally it'd be real mm. but um these sort of stunty things are still quite cool at least to me um as someone who might, well, I do take the tube, but I might not have seen a swimming pool. So if someone did a fake swimming yeah, pool, yeah, this was in it was in the Middle East somewhere as well. Right. But it kind of went mm. well, like the whole, all of the images and stuff went. Uh, I think it was Adidas. <laughs> I'm gonna have to check that. Mm. <laughs> I think if you if you can highlight the power of the medium, then that's a good thing. As long as you don't take it too far, I think is mm. mm. sort of where my head would be at. So one more question before we get on to the sort of quick hits section. You know, we're quite a ways away now from when the pandemic lockdowns were going on. Although I have I have heard of news recently of a new variant that's apparently scaring some people. No, no. I'm not going to ruin everyone's day by getting into that. But um, I'm curious if we've settled into a new normal post-COVID uh, when it comes to out of home. Because for a really long time, there was the sort of okay, we're kind of, we're back in the office, but only a few days a week and offices are still kind of figuring out how often people are actually coming in. That has a lot to do with who's seeing ads in centralized locations, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm curious, have we sort of reached a state now where you're a bit more comfortable that you feel like, okay, we're, there's a bit, there's a new normal and we can adjust to this. We have adjusted to this, or if we're still in a sort of state of flux a little bit. I think we're still in a bit of a state of flux. I think that we'd got so used to pre-pandemic, we got so used to behaviours being very predictable and behaviours are not predictable anymore. Having said that, I think we are getting to a point where we're realising, you know, when people are around and about out of home and when they're not. So previously it might have been Monday to Friday in cities. Now it's probably Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but actually people are then are coming into cities more often at the weekend. So the pattern of behaviour, so the exposure to advertising is, in terms of an absolute level, is probably similar, but it's just spread differently across the week. And I think that's not a bad thing because actually you think about what your commute used to be like pre-pandemic. I bet it got to about Thursday or Friday, you didn't really pay attention to anything because you were so <laughs> knackered. Mm. Um, whereas I think now, you know, if people are not coming into the office quite so much, they're paying a bit more attention to what's going on around them. And if they're coming in at the weekends, they're paying different types of attention. Yeah, different so, mindset. Different mindset. So I think, and that, that has challenges uh, from a measurement perspective, is that we can't just do something that's week you know a week long measurement study we've got to really try and think about how do we measure things on different days of the week so that's one of the challenges i've set for the next contract is you know how can we take account of spikes in data what happens with glastonbury or what happens with wimbledon or what happens with 
the Women's World Cup, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I'll ask about it in a second. Uh, no, do, do, please. Uh, but, you know, so so obviously we're measuring half a million screens around the country. So we've got to sort of balance the cost-benefit analysis of measurement. But equally, what I want to do is make sure that we are agile enough to take account of, uh, you know, people moving around during the week versus the weekend and how can we do that? So I, I don't have the answers yet, but that's definitely one of the things I'm looking at. So are we at a new normal? What's normal? <laughs> <laughs> Define the terms. Yeah. But, you but, were saying we, but we are definitely in a different sphere now than we were mm. pre-pandemic. And, you know, and the out-of-home ministry is flourishing. Mm. Some, so we yeah. need to try and sort of make sure that the measurement adapts to that as well. Yeah. Something interesting that um, I've heard from a few people from in the out-of-home uh, space is, you know, out-of-home is one of the few mediums that hasn't been fragmented by digital. It's it's and so that's you know the audiences and everyone's everyone's still going out and that it, that hasn't fragmented. Um, so that's quite interesting mm. uh, to think about from a media perspective. Yeah, and whether you see a static billboard ad or whether you see a digital ad, you're still seeing an ad out of home mm-hmm. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. Mm. So it's not the same as you know seeing a tele ad versus a bivod ad or a. Print or YouTube, ad versus or, a, yeah. yeah. So, so it is it's it's definitely not that it's better. It's just different, mm-hmm. mm. and that's what we sort of need to work out. You know, from a measurement perspective, actually, how do we, you know, and also from a digital out of home perspective, you know, you know the the transitions will be different. They might be ten seconds. They might be fifteen seconds. They might be twenty seconds. How do we account for that and allow for different sort of scrolling of digital ads as well. Mm. So brings its own challenges. <laughs> Exciting challenges, I'm sure. Um, I'd like to move us into our quick hit section. So I did mention I was going to ask about the World Women's World Cup. It concluded over the weekend. Uh, England sadly lost to Spain in the final. You're just rubbing it in. <laughs> I, no, I, I was rooting for England. I mean, my, my girlfriend's British. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, it's all behind us now. Um, what do we make of the Women's World Cup as a media event? this year. I know you wrote about how advertisers were rather late to buy against mm. it this year. Um, that was partially due to some awkward time differences it being hosted in New Zealand. The games were occurring not you know at peak viewership hours. Um, but there seemed to be at least a, a growing audience for women's football, uh, especially coming from the Euros. Um, and so I'm curious what, what we should make of the, the the whole event now that's over. I think the fact that it was carried on BBC One and ITV One and BBC iPlayer, ITVX, and they really ramped up their broadcast. They had a lot more um, uh, fe- former female players commentating, being pundits, presenting, and that was amazing to see, which you wouldn't, which I hadn't seen at a previous World Cup. So I think that's all really positive uh, momentum. And it just has to keep going. And it's like Jill Scott, um, who helped the team win the Euros last year, she was speaking at our event in October and she was saying, yeah, the you know, brands have to be authentic and actually be there for the grassroots and for the long haul. You can't, you know, obviously you can do your, your kind of camp, ramp up your campaigns around big events and it's, I feel like we've had this conversation before about other kinds of events mm. um, like Pride, but I do think 
that that she that Joel Scott makes a really good point about like it, you have to as a brand get in there with the grassroots and actually Google Pixels one that they have been sponsoring the men and women's games since the last World Cup uh, the men England men and women's team sorry and then uh, and I think Weetabix as well has been sponsoring since the 2019 so those are big brands that that can kind of you know be more vocal I definitely uh, agree that it was slow I think brands were too slow in you know supporting the team and the tournament and everything that was going on especially as they won the euros last year mm. you think the brands would know wouldn't yeah. you but so you, you can't help but think if it had been the men's how different it would have been and also you know the president of the FA yeah. prince william would have been at that at the tournament and yeah. at the final, if mm. men's had, men's had made the final, that's my last. That's my only political I, I, point. <laughs> I just, I just, I just feel like they they missed a trick in not building it up sooner, harder, stronger. Um, you know, and and I don't. Well, I have said this in the past, but I'm the first woman to run a jick in over a dozen years, so I'm absolutely passionate about women's rights and you know I just and I, I'm not that particularly I'm more of a rugby fan than a football fan <laughs> but I watched the match yesterday mm. I even with my dodgy wi-fi in the Pyrenees on Wednesday I was trying to check where they'd got to versus Australia because I thought it's so important mm. to you know and and you you read some of these stories about some of them I think it was Lucy Bronze who um, was told at age 12 that she couldn't play anymore because uh, she was 12 and she was a girl and mm. she couldn't be part there was of no the boys' team. Yeah. And I just think that's so ridiculous, you know. And, I mean, the same thing happens in rugby, actually, mm. to be honest, with girls not being able to play. Mm. With the World but, Cup coming up, it'd be interesting yeah. to see how that... So it'd be interesting yeah. to see how that sort of pans out. But uh, I just think, you know what, we've moved a long way from where we were and that's a really good thing I think we still go away to go in terms mm. of supporting the women's game yeah mm. I think the president of FIFA s sort of put his foot in it a bit um Infantino he said in a press conference in Sydney that you know men and FIFA are open women just need to like bang on the door more and like you know and that's wow. and it was basically like a, you <laughs> haven't been pushing women you have not been pushing hard enough and you sounds have like some victim of, blaming, and and it just very much has caused this huge uh, backlash, as it should have done, because it's completely ridiculous well, comment. On the FIFA board, five are men and one is a woman. Well, you know, FIFA is just the most amazing organization <laughs> in the world. No corruption either. Yeah. But no, I I am so proud of those women, yeah. and I hope that they can, in time, mm -hmm. you know be really proud of their achievements yeah. because that was amazing, amazing. To, to get to where they got to. Mm -hmm. mm. Next topic, last week Google announced new features for its AI search function. Uh, users will now be able to not just receive AI-generated information in search to you know, perhaps answer to a question or a topic, but the AI will, now, AI will now be able to summarize the content of a specific article might, a user might otherwise have clicked on to read. Denise, especially given your experience at Newsworks and with publishers, I mean, how, how worried should publishers be about Google's sort of encroachment into their space via AI on search? Because um, when I saw that news, I was like, this, this is going to be like DEFCON 1 for publishers. I mean, you're talking about having people to get information from articles without having to read it at all or even click a link if you're you know, uh, reliant on 
display advertising for revenue, I would imagine that's really could be tough. I think that's in some ways it's nothing new. You know, there, there's been some research around in years past um, where people have, you know, the amount of people that read an article before they share it is very low. Mm. <laughs> so to my, to my mind, that's not really surprising. I think one of the things that sort of struck me, I have teenagers, 19 and 17, and I'm always talking to them about, think about where that article is coming from, who's written it, why have they written it? And I think there's an education piece that needs to happen around, even if you don't read it all, ask who's written it and why, because that is part of, and, and I know that um, certainly for my children when they were doing their A-levels, um, it was all definitely back in person last year because they didn't want them to be doing stuff via AI and they had to write it themselves. Mm. Um, I don't know when you last wrote something for several hours. Oh, uh, for my, my university finals, I think, yeah. It was for my master's than, degree. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite hard work, isn't yeah. it? And also, I think it, it requires a different skill set to editing on a mm. computer. Your brain is processing it and you sort of have so, to go yeah. a bit further ahead because yeah. you can't just write something and then delete it. Not at all. I mean, I did um, maybe, I can't remember how long ago, maybe eight or nine years ago I finished it. I did the... Um, MRS diploma and it was four modules two of which were in-person exams and two of which were assessments the in-person exams I had to write for three hours mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily the writing for three hours although that was quite hard on my hand but it was the editing bit that I had to think ahead of what I was doing before I went back to it to mm -hmm. edit it and I, I wonder whether we've lost some of that skill of Planning and, planning and editing mm. and stuff. So that's a roundabout answer to your question. But I do think that asking why is a really good is a really good thing to do. Who's written this, and why have they written it, and what's their what's their modus operandi, if you like? Mm. Mm -hmm. I think I think we'd all agree that everyone needs to up their media literacy a little bit like that. Um, Denise, final question. You mentioned that you were just on holiday. I'm curious, you said you, said you read some, a few books. Do you have any really good holiday reads recommendations for anyone out there that's still taking you know, their summer vacation or, or looking for a, a good book? For the bank to, holiday weekend, maybe. For the bank holiday weekend, for Ella's birthday coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, so, <Jack. laughs> yes, I do. I, do you know what? I did read lots on holiday. So I tend to go between really lighthearted and quite serious. So lighthearted was Bob Mortimer, The Satsuma Complex. Really quirky, funny book. Just, I mean, it's silly, but very good. Um, serious, uh, Mo Goddard, former chief business officer at Google X. I read Solve for Happy, which is all about actually how can you be happy and what what is it that's important in your life? Um, What's the secret? <laughs> there's a happiness equation. and happy, So you don't strive for success. Success doesn't equal happiness. I don't believe that for a <laughs> <laughs> But he lost his son at age 20. His son was 21, died on an operating table, and he is still 
really happy. Um, mm. I also finished Barack Obama's book. Mm. Oh, yeah. Which was amazing and finished with uh, when they took out Osama bin, bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, nobody wants to kill anybody, but th- what that man did was awful. Mm. And it was it made me cry actually reading that bit mm. the the funny the funniest thing in the book though was um they were at the copenhagen um climate change summit and the chinese premier was uh playing silly what's it and avoiding barack obama and he said to hillary clinton he said should we go and get crash this party mm. so they went up and they so the chinese premier was in a room with India uh, and a couple of other nations around that that area, and he said, "Oh, you've been waiting for me, have you?" <laughs> <laughs> and then he basically did an eleventh hour kind of shenanigans, saying, "Well, I'm going to tell them that you don't want to commit to this, and you know what you're going to do," and basically sorted it out in half an hour <laughs> before he had to to. Catch you know, catch, catch Air Force One back because there was uh, snowstorms in the US, and I just thought, gosh, sometimes it comes down to having confidence in yourself and your abilities to just do what needs to be done. So those are my holiday reads. Mm. I like a bit of a silly book. Oh, the other one I read was Rob Rinder's uh, The Trial, which was really good. <laughs> is that an autobiography or is it just no? It's a, it's a fiction. Crime. Fiction. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I always I, I like I like a bit of a crime novel, <laughs> <laughs> especially on vacation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, they all sound wonderful. Um, we'll have to leave the conversation there. But Denise, thank you so much for coming. Ella, of course, thank you for coming as well. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat with both of you. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.